day in April never came so sweet to show how costly summer was at hand. That's right, it's April, and on Royals, Rebels, and Romantics, that means Shakespeare. I hope you enjoy all of our Shakespeare fun this month. Exit Pursued by a Bear Shakespeare doesn't have a lot of stage directions, but when he has them, he makes them count, and that's one of the most famous. It's an indication that death is coming. After all, in Shakespeare's time, people would have seen bear baiting. They knew quite well how dangerous it would be to be pursued by a bear. In the Shakespeare world, death is a popular topic. Director and actor Tim Crouch reveals his choices for the top 10 deaths in Shakespeare. Arthur in King John, Sin of the Poet in Julius Caesar, Clarence in Richard III, The Fly in Titus Andronicus, The Pie in Titus Andronicus, Brutus in Julius Caesar, Desdemona in Othello, King Lear in King Lear, Young Macduff in the Scottish play, and Cleopatra in Antony and Cleopatra. Well, Today, we're going to be talking about Shakespeare's death. Shakespeare's death is one of my favorite topics, so much so that I'm going to be spending some time talking about it today and even more time going into even more gory details at an event for the Smithsonian, Death by Shakespeare. It's happening Thursday, the 14th of April in 2022 at 6.30 p.m. as part of Smithsonian Streaming. If you want more information, you can either contact me, Carol Ann, at carolannloyd.com, go to smithsonianassociates.org, or of course, I'll have some information in the show notes. In any case, we're going to tease a little bit of that famous death by talking about some of the ways that Shakespeare addresses death. In fact, in Shakespeare's life and in his plays, death is pervasive. Remember, after all, that just a couple of months after Shakespeare was born, if you look at the register in Stratford-upon-Avon, there's a little note saying, here begins plague. Plague decimated his hometown, and quite frankly, he was lucky to survive. Not everyone did. The plague was a constant figure in Shakespeare's life. It shut down the theaters. It sent actors and playwrights away from their place of business. People weren't allowed to gather in large groups. That sounds a little more familiar these days to us. So death was pervasive in Shakespeare's life, not only through the plague, but also there was violence everywhere. And capital punishment was frequent and public. So let's see some of the ways that death plays out in Shakespeare's plays. Now, we know that something like Romeo and Juliet is a play about death, but you might not be aware just how pervasive death is in that famous play. When Tybalt stabs Mercutio, he cries, I am hurt, a plague on both your houses. Now, it's easy to think, oh yes, Mercutio is cursing both sides of the argument. The Montagues, the Capulets, they're equally to blame for his death. So he's cursing them both. And there is something of that. But in Shakespeare's day, that phrase went even deeper. 
wishing the plague on anyone was really terrifying. Immediately after he says that, Mercutio starts joking a little bit with Romeo. Romeo's desperately trying to assure his friend, courage, man, the hurt cannot be much. Mercutio responds, ask for me tomorrow and you shall find me a grave man. And then immediately he repeats his curse, a plague on both your houses. Now Mercutio asks Benvolio to take him to a house. And as he does, he says a third time, a plague on both your houses. Mercutio dies and death follows upon death as Romeo slays Tybalt and things catapult into catastrophe. He's cursing them and his death curses Romeo. But invoking the plague is a specific horror to to people who have lived with the threat of it for years. It's not unlike saying, I hope you all get COVID when we were right in the middle of it and we were losing business and we couldn't visit family who were sick or friends and we were battling to survive or maybe after we just lost a beloved friend or family member. In the middle of that, imagine someone crying, I hope both families get the plague three times as part of a play. Or, I hope both families get COVID. It's cursing both sides. And it's invoking a killing disease that regularly appeared out of nowhere and killed with abandon. Okay, we're not finished with the plague in Romeo and Juliet. Much later, after Friar Lawrence had come up with this great fake death plan, he puts it in motion so Juliet has faked her death, and Friar John was supposed to get a letter to Romeo to let him know what was going on so he would know Juliet wasn't really dead. But the plague intervened. As Friar John reported, the searchers of the town, suspecting that we both were in a house where the infectious pestilence did reign, sealed up the doors and would not let us forth. He didn't get the letter to Romeo. So Romeo ended up believing Juliet was really dead. And that led to the deaths of Paris, Romeo, and Juliet in the final scene. They didn't die of the plague, but they died because of the plague. Death is pervasive in Shakespeare in ways that sometimes catch us off guard. And it even shows up in the comedies. In Midsummer Night's Dream, which is one of the most comedic and actually funny of Shakespeare's comedies, it begins with the threat of death. Aegeus and his daughter Hermia come before the Duke, Theseus. Aegeus wants Hermia to marry Demetrius, and Hermia wants to marry Lysander. Demetrius is loved by Helena, but he's not keen on her. We as the audience are eager to get to the woods with the fairies and the love potion and the confusion and the hilarity as various humans fall in love with the wrong people. But before we get there, there's a pretty chilling line from Aegeus to the Duke. Be it so, she will not hear before your grace consent to marry Demetrius, I beg the ancient privilege of Athens, as she is mine, I may dispose of her. 
which shall be either to this gentleman or to her death, according to our law. In other words, marry the man I choose or I'll have you killed. So we might think she's running off to the woods to spend time with her lover, but she's also going to save her life. Death is lurking in Shakespeare, even in one of the most comedic of the comedies. Another way Shakespeare gives us death is death as haunting. Remember, this was a time when religious beliefs shaped everyone's life. And most people truly believed actions on this earth, according to their belief in God, determined how they would spend eternity after their death. What happened after death was something on everyone's minds, for family members and for themselves. And that's difficult in a time of religious turmoil. So we have Henry VIII in the 1530s breaking with Rome and the Pope. He remained mostly Catholic in his belief system and practice, but he established himself as supreme head of the Church of England and allowed for more committed reformers like Cromwell and Cranmer to begin a reform process and change the national belief system. Then Edward VI came along, a committed reformer, and with Cranmer's help, he redefined what people were expected to believe and how people were expected to worship. Practices regarding the dead were overhauled, and everyone was expected to adopt the king's belief system. Then he died, and Mary the first came along and took the country back into Catholicism. She reinstituted allegiance with the Pope and Rome. She abolished the Church of England, ended the use of Edward's prayer books, and established the Catholic belief system, expecting everyone once again to adopt the beliefs of the monarch. After Mary died, Elizabeth I came along. She tried to establish more of a middle way. She reestablished the Church of England, but she did keep Catholics on her council and in high positions in government. But after about a decade, the Pope excommunicated her and encouraged English Catholics to rise up against the Queen, get her off the throne, and put Mary, Queen of Scots, on the throne. And then there was that lengthy war with Spain, where Philip is trying to institute Catholicism in England. So by the time Shakespeare comes along and he's writing his plays, religious confusion and chaos has batted people around for years. And there were lots of really frightening questions about what happened after death that they were haunting people. And the notion of loved ones not being able to rest in peace is a part of two plays of Shakespeare's and others, but it's a really big part of Hamlet and the Scottish play. So let's start with the ghost of Hamlet when he appears. Here's what he says. I am thy father's spirit, doomed for a certain time to walk the night and for the day confined to fast in fires till the foul crimes done in my days of nature are burnt and purged away. The reason he is unable to rest in peace is because he was killed by his brother with his sin still upon him. Thus was I, sleeping, by a brother's hand of life, 
of crown of queen at once dispatched, cut off even in the blossoms of my sin. No reckoning made, but sent to my account with all my imperfections on my head. The haunting image of a father unable to rest in peace pretty much destroys Hamlet. In a similar way in the Scottish play, the haunting image of Banquo turns Macbeth into a panic and prevents him from being able to carry out his intended actions on his quest for full power. After he has been murdered on Macbeth's orders, the ghost of Banquo comes to a banquet and takes Macbeth's place at the table. No one can see the ghost but Macbeth, whose responses to the ghost become more and more frantic. And here's how they sound over a period of lines. Which of you have done this? Thou canst not say I did it. Never shake thy gory locks at me. Behold, look, lo, how say you? Avant and quit my sight. Let the earth hide thee. Thy bones are marrowless. Thy blood is cold. It will have blood, they say. Blood will have blood. Death is haunting Macbeth. He has nowhere to hide. In addition, though, to death being haunting in Shakespeare, death is also entertaining in Shakespeare. Consider this. If you lived in Shakespeare's day and you have a free afternoon, you might decide to go to a beheading or a hanging of a known traitor. Or you might decide to go to bear biting and watch dogs and bears fight to the death. Or you might go to the theater. Blood sport, whether featuring traitors or bears and dogs, might sound horrifying to us. But these were a part of the very fabric of early modern London. So Shakespeare was competing with some pretty dramatic events. In addition, the streets on the way to the theater were full of people who were armed and, well, dangerous. Walking to a show in the afternoon, walking to the theater, you might have passed a sword fight or two, or even a knife fight. Most of the men in the theater were wearing a knife and knew how to use it. So what was happening on stage needed to look real to keep people's attention. Shakespeare did this in a few different ways. One way was to stage elaborately choreographed sword fights, and he used careful choreography and a fight master to accomplish this. We see an example in Hamlet. In that final scene, after a play with many, many fights, Hamlet and Laertes face off in this final battle. We know that Laertes' sword is poisoned and that Claudius has poisoned the cup he offers to Hamlet. So violence and death are actually players in that final scene. While Hamlet and Laertes fight over an extended period, 
they continue to deliver all these lines. At one point, they also get into a scuffle in a way that has to be done convincingly. So we believe somehow the two exchange swords and Laertes knows that his sword is poisoned. So he has to have no choice somehow, but to have Hamlet take that sword and leave him with the other one. It has to be creative and convincing with Laertes having no choice and now being desperately afraid of being even wounded by the poison sword. Oh, and by the way, by this time, the queen has been poisoned and she's dying right on stage two. So it's a fast-moving, fast-talking, fast-dying scene. And before we know it, the queen has been poisoned. Laertes has been wounded with the poison sword, so he's going to die. Hamlet learns that the sword is poisoned, and so he's been hit, so he's going to die. And he stabs Claudius and then makes him drink from the poison cup for good measure. Claudius dies, and then finally Hamlet dies as well. We see all that play out right before our eyes in a fast-paced, quote, entertaining way. In Midsummer Night's Dream, we see another version of death as entertainment. The play within a play, Pyramus and Thisbe, is an example of Shakespeare parodying himself with a Romeo and Juliet type lover's death scene with a little bit of a twist. Here, rather than full-on tragedy of star-crossed lovers taking their life, Nick Bottom turns the death of Pyramus into a chance to overact. Come, tear, confound, outsword, and wound the pap of Pyramus. I that left pap, where heart doth hop. Thus die I. Thus, thus, thus. Now am I dead. Now am I fled. My soul is in the sky. Tongue lose thy light. Moon take thy flight. And die, 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 die. Even after all that traumatic dramatic death, when someone in the audience on stage as part of the play mentions the wall being available to bury the dead, Bottom sits up and explains that by now the wall is down. Here, death is humorous and entertaining with an allusion to Romeo and Juliet, but turned into something much less tragic. Another and more dramatic sense of death as entertainment and theater happens with Julius Caesar. We watch as Caesar ignores the warnings of the women around him and heads out on the Ides of March. We know that Brutus and the others have planned his assassination. When the moment comes, it isn't much of a surprise to anyone but Caesar who has seemed to willfully not see the danger staring him in the face. This is a good opportunity for us to talk a bit about stage blood. There was a roundtable discussion about the use of stage blood in early modern theater in the period of 1576 to 1642, 
held at the Globe a few years ago. Here are three of the things the scholars pointed out. One, during this period of time from 1576 to 1642, there was a focus on representing blood and death on stage in a realistic way. This was done sometimes using animal blood, specifically calves, pigs, and sheep's blood, or other things like wine and vinegar. Sometimes blood was applied to cloth or weapons or the actors themselves. So, for example, when in the play Othello, there are repeated mentions of Othello having given Desdemona a handkerchief spotted with strawberries. And if that handkerchief spotted with these little red berries is ever held up, that image and that reference would have a particular shiver for the audience because they had seen other bits of cloth spotted with something red, and that's usually blood and death. So that's how blood typically would be on stage, on a handkerchief, on a cloth, on a weapon, or already on an actor. But sometimes, although less often, you saw blood shed on stage. The second thing about blood in this attempt to have realistic portrayals was there was a concern with the value of the costumes and the difficulty in cleaning them. So the costumes were often given to the players by their patrons or given to the company by the patrons, and they were real fabric, real fur, incredibly valuable, expensive pieces that were used over and over in all these different plays and were not easy to clean. In fact, one of the only things they could use at this time to get out blood was urine. So they really tried to keep the blood off these expensive costumes and tried to put it just on little bits of cloth that could be either replaced or cleaned. So that was a concern. Now, Reginald Scott's book, written at that time about witchcraft, this is the third thing to come out of that conference. Um, It tells us some interesting things about how a bloody death could be staged. And these ideas might have been used in playhouses. And so here is what he says, between your actual body and then a false body or a false stomach or a false arm that you've added through a costume, he says, quote, put a gut or bladder of blood, which blood must be of a calf or of a sheep, but in no wise of an ox or a cow for that will be too thick. So he's telling you exactly what kind of blood to use. And then he goes on to say, when you are stabbed, quote, the said blood will spin or spit out a good distance from you. So there was some time a way to make blood come out of a person and they could see that on stage. Animal blood was readily available during this time. And, you know, Shakespeare's theater was really close to some places where animals were butchered. And so he could have gotten this. Now, not all deaths, even violent deaths, sometimes don't need to be bloody. So think about that final scene in Hamlet. People are poisoned and even the people that are stabbed, blood doesn't really need to be seen for you to get the idea of all those deaths. But some deaths, 
and the aftermath of some deaths really do need some blood. And Caesar's stabbing is one of those deaths. So we have Act 3, Scene 1. The great crowd is gathered. Caesar leaves the action for a moment to read some petitions. And this allows him, if you think about stagecraft and Shakespeare as an actor, knowing he has to write a bit of speech where Caesar can go off to the side and have these blood bags hung on him. Then Caesar returns and the men surround him. And when Casca shouts, speak hands for me, he then stabs him and others stab him. And of course, the last we do so is Brutus et tu brute, then fall Caesar. Now, that scene wouldn't necessarily require that the audience see blood flowing. But what comes next does. Brutus instructs his followers, grant that and then is death a benefit. So we are Caesar's friends that have abridged his time of fearing death. Stoop, Romans, stoop, and let us bathe our hands in Caesar's blood up to the elbows and besmear our swords. Then walk we forth, even to the marketplace, and waving our red weapons o'er our heads, let's all cry peace, freedom, and liberty. Cassius replies, Stoop then and wash. So they cover themselves with Caesar's blood. That means there needs to be blood that the audience can see. Not so much on Caesar as on his assassins. They mark themselves with it as a badge of honor. This is a type of entertainment that sets Shakespeare's plays apart and gets the audience talking, and brings them back the next day to see another play. Now, the way plays were performed at this time made this kind of thing a bit easier. Companies would not have performed Caesar afternoon, and then the next afternoon, and then the next afternoon. That's not how they did it. Instead, a performance of something like Caesar might be followed the next afternoon by a comedy or a history. And those would perhaps include the threat of death, or in the history plays a lot of death, but not necessarily something bloody that was so tricky to pull off. So they might have four or five days of other plays where they could get everything washed and get everything ready to come back and then do Caesar maybe again in another week or so. Shakespeare decided to put death center stage in plays like Julius Caesar, to do things that other playwrights were not doing. And this is one of the ways that his plays became so memorable and make such an impact both back in his time and today. Death was an important and essential part of Shakespeare's life in the theater, both on stage And when that pesky old plague would close the theaters and send the actors and playwrights out into the countryside to take their shows on the road, also inspiring Shakespeare to do some of his poetry. Another way that we do see death in Shakespeare's life is on a more personal level. There were 
deaths within Shakespeare's family, and one of them was a tragic death of his son, Hamnet. And sometimes in Shakespeare's plays, you do wonder if you're just seeing a little bit of Shakespeare the man, Shakespeare the father, in the way his plays roll out. For example, in a not very popular play, King John, we hear this amazing speech by Constance when her son, Arthur, had died. Grief fills up the room of my absent child, lies in his bed, walks up and down with me, puts on his pretty looks, repeats his word, remembers me of all his gracious parts, stuffs out his vacant garments with his form. Then have I reason to be fond of grief? Fare you well. Had you such a loss as I, I could give better comfort than you do. I will not keep this form upon my head when there is such disorder in my wit. Oh, my boy, my Arthur, my fair son, my life, my joy, my food, my all the world, my widow comfort, and my sorrow's cure. It's hard not to hear those lines and think they were written by someone who has experienced a child's death. And likewise, in the closing moments of Twelfth Night, when twins are reunited, it's almost impossible for me not to imagine when Shakespeare tells us, reveals when the play reveals that the twin brother everyone thought was dead is in fact not and is brought back to the family. Perhaps he's wishing how much he could do that with his own son. Well, in any case, death is an essential and an important part in Shakespeare's plays. And if you happen to be listening before the 14th of April, 2022, I hope you'll join me with Smithsonian Streaming to get even more insight into the world of Shakespeare's death so that we can all exit pursued by a bear. We'll have more Shakespeare with some of my favorite Shakespearean folks throughout the rest of the month. Thank you so much for joining me. The uncertain glory of an April day, which now shows all the beauty of the sun, and by and by, a cloud takes all away. Thank you for joining us for April and Shakespeare with Royals, Rebels, and Romantics. I appreciate your listening. Please subscribe and think about becoming a patron. And let's keep shaking up history and Shakespeare together. Shakespeare.